Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome to the Bible Talks for Week 10. It is great to see you here. Uh, last week of term, you've done well. Um, my name's Tim. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here on campus. And we've got a great passage before us. A big chapter. Lots of fun and challenging details. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to understand His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that You are the God who speaks that you've made yourself known through the scriptures, that we can know you and know what life is about in your world. Father, please show us your wisdom clearly by your spirit today, that we may live well as your people. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, can I introduce you to Pirate? Pirate is an eight-year-old Maltese cross who lives for walks. He loves a good treat. He's house-trained, but probably don't let him off without offense. He sleeps through the night. And he doesn't mind if you work all day. He'll still greet you happily as you walk through the door. Uh, Pirate was found on the street uh, a little while ago, but he's now being cared for at Newcastle Dog Rescue. If you'd like to adopt him as your own, set him free from the pound, for $500, Pirate can be yours. Are you tempted? Uh, Do you know, you've actually got something in common with our friend Pirate. The Bible says that the natural state of humanity is a bit like what Pirate was going through. We've run away from the God who made us. We've tried to do life our own way. It might have seemed fun and exciting to start with, but sooner or later, life catches up with us. We are strays. Well, it's kind of worse than that. The Bible says our reality is that we're slaves to sin, bound under the power of Satan, destined to face death. It sounds pretty serious, and it is, if not for the good news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself came and paid the price to set us free, with no penalty left on our record. I'm not sure if you noticed in the middle of that long reading, down in verse 23, there's a beautiful little phrase which captures the heart of Christianity. Christians are described as those who have been bought with a price. Consider Pirate. If you were to set him free from the pound, he doesn't contribute anything to, well, his being rescued. He just goes along for the ride. Freedom is his gift. And it's the same if you're a follower of Jesus. We don't contribute a cent to our rescue, our ransom. But it cost Jesus his life as he died to take the punishment that we deserve. As Paul says in verse 22, If you come to Jesus, there's this profound freedom. So much so that even if you're a bondservant in this life, with limited freedoms, you're a free person in the Lord. Because you've been set free from the shackles of sin and death. Even if you need to keep on cooking and cleaning or whatever else your human master requires. You are free. But that freedom isn't absolute. Just as if you were to go and buy or adopt not purchasing, but you're adopting pirate to be your own. He's not free to go back to roam the streets as he was before. He's got a new master. You set the rules for how he lives. And in the same way, verse 23 talks about the new reality. Sorry, it's verse 22 still. uh, The new reality for the Christian. 
We have been set free from sin and death, but to live for a new master. And so even if you are free in this life, if you're a Christian, verse 22 says you're actually a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. Not in some oppressive or burdensome way, but actually constrained and directed to live as we were meant to live by the God who made us that way. Now, as I kept on reading about Pirate on his little bio page on the Newcastle Pound, uh, you get to find out about his you know, dietary requirements, his hair shedding requirements, his recent dental work. But then there's this interesting line, Pirate's forever home will be with, it's talking about his adoption. You know? His forever home will be with an experienced person, someone who will notice and understand his body language, someone who wants an adorable walking companion but doesn't have any kids or pets or um, cats. They, you know, Bobby doesn't play well with others. Now, as I read that, I thought it sounds very nice and cute, but I couldn't help thinking it was a bit of an oversell. An eight-year-old dog, you might have another half dozen years at best, forever home, he's going to be a temporary companion. But the reality is for us as a Christian, if Christ has purchased you, then you really do have a forever home. Much more than adopting a a puppy from the pound, get those ones right, not puppy, sorry. Uh, But you've been set free from death, you've been released from judgment. You have new life and hope, eternal life with the God who made you. Now, you see, it might be a bit quaint to talk about adopting a pet, but it's a helpful illustration for the Christian life. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you've been bought from death to life through Jesus' death in your place. But our life now is all about living for Jesus. We live for Him. He is our Lord. He is our Master. And that is where freedom is found. But there's also obligation. He tells us what is good for us about how we are to live. And today we're really exploring what God says is good for us in the realms of, well, relationships and sexuality. Uh, Can I say, if you're here joining us today, if you're here checking out what Christianity is all about, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, We really value that you're here this week because you get a insight into some of the nuts and bolts of what God has to say about our lives and life in the world. But up front, I wanted you to see about pirate or the Christian life. It's really important for us all to remember that what we see in this chapter is not the stuff that you should do to earn God's favor. No, we can't do that. God needs to rescue us. This is about how we live the Christian life. But I want that to be the foundation for all that we see because that's what Paul has in mind. At the end of chapter 6, the last words before we started the reading today, we've been told, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That same idea comes up in the middle of the chapter, chapter 7 and verse 23. You have been bought with a price if you're a Christian. And so, if you are here and you haven't yet experienced that, can I draw your attention to your outline? I've hidden mine somewhere. But on the side of your outline, I've got a picture. Here's one I prepared earlier. Uh, on the side of your outline, you can, there's a box there that says, I'd like to learn more about Jesus. I know it's week 10. It feels like everything is coming to a close. But can I flag that now, at any point through the talk, you want to find out more about who Jesus is and how you can receive His rescue, tick that box. We'll get in touch with you. We'll find a way over exams. We'd love you to know more than anything else about the Lord Jesus who laid down His life for you. And if you have been purchased, what does that life look like? Well, we're at point two in your outlines, married for good. Verse one uh, sets the context for what's going on. Paul's addressing some things that the Corinthians have written to him about. 
they've raised this issue, namely that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. From the outset, it shows that their context is a little different to ours. Can you imagine someone today saying it's good for someone to not have sex with a woman? It seems completely foreign in our society. So what is it that was going on for them? We aren't told. Paul didn't need to unpack it because the Corinthians clearly knew what was going on for them. But it seems that they think that it's more spiritual or beneficial for married couples to avoid sex. Perhaps thinking that sex wasn't the most wholesome way that God's people should live. Now, interestingly, in different world religions at different times, it's not uncommon to deprive bodily desires out of an attempt to, I guess, draw closer to God or to please God. Uh, we're coming to the end of the Islamic month of Ramadan. There's just a couple of days left. During the daylight hours, Muslims don't eat and they don't have sex. As one of the ways they're trying to draw near to God and approach Him during this month. In the lead up to Easter, many, particularly from a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox Christian background, will go through a period of Lent where they'll, or traditionally, fast and pray and seek to draw near to God. These days, people often talk about it as avoiding chocolate or alcohol. Seems to have lost some of that, but maybe we've realized the tradition wasn't that helpful. Or in the Roman Catholic Church today, uh, their priests are still required to have a vow of celibacy, uh, to abstain from sexuality and even marriage as part of showing their suitability for office. You see, religion is pretty familiar with the idea that some kind of self-deprivation might be helpful in drawing near to God. Perhaps that's how the Corinthians decided to think. But as Paul picks up this issue, he's very clear that this is not God's plan for marriage. In verse 2, he disagrees. Rather than avoid sexual relations, he says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Here to have your own spouse, it's not a command to get married. Instead, for those who are married, it's a command to have sex. The following verses kind of make that clear. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Uh, Paul's basically saying if you're married, then you've got an obligation, a duty, a responsibility to serve your spouse sexually, to have sex with them. Now, do you find that surprising? Do some biblical instructions or instructions in general seem a little unnecessary. I was reminded of this, that some clothing labels may be unnecessary. This one I like, yeah, wash when dirty. Thanks for the pro tip. But my personal favorite is on kids' clothing, remove child before washing. Very helpful advice. But you must think perhaps unnecessary. Is that also what you think about when married couples are told to have sex? You may well be working hard not to have sex as a single, and you think it's somewhat inconceivable that those who are married would need this encouragement. But as a, a word of wisdom for the future, when stress and tiredness with the addition of children and whatever else is going on in life, not every night of marriage is like your dream of a honeymoon. Christian couples, we're told, should seek to serve each other sexually, to be intentional about it. And did you notice how reciprocal it is? Like husband, like wife, again and again, Paul says the same thing twice, but being really explicit that the husband serves the wife and the wife serves the husband. Husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And the wife doesn't have authority over it. It goes backwards and forwards all the way through. This beautiful picture is not just about sex, but their whole bodies being given to each other 
for the pleasure, the joy of the other person. It's about service. And it's a beautiful image of selfless intimacy. The focus is on the other person, not yourself. But as you read this, does part of you feel a little concerned or even scared? Unfortunately, in our society, we're only too aware of the sexual abuse and that is all too prevalent in our sexualized culture. And so the idea that a husband could have authority over his wife's body sounds like that's opening the door to exploitation and abuse. Can I just be really clear, that is not at all God's plan or God's intention or what this passage is saying. One of the ways we see that, Paul labors again and again on how reciprocal this is. It's not one-sided. It's not that one has dominion, but both or neither has authority over their own bodies. They're both giving to the other person. But notice it's also the direction of the relationship. It's about giving what you have to serve the other, not demanding something you want to serve yourself. Marriage is service, not demanding. There is no place in Christian marriage or in any marriage for demanding, abusing, exploiting sex or sexual favors from your spouse. That is not God's design for marriage. And we must not permit or ever be seen to condone or encourage that behavior. As is Paul's pattern throughout the caption, this whole chapter, he gives a really clear pattern and expectation, but he also provides exceptions again and again. And in many cases, the exceptions just highlight his general rule. We see one of these exceptions down in verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another of having sex, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again sexually, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See what he's saying? It's really highlighting the same point. His concession is that if you both agree for a limited amount of time, you can pause having sex together for the sake of prayer, but then get back to having sex together. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The principles that bracket this whole section in verse 2 and verse 5 are saying that you should be sexually fulfilled within marriage or to help guard against sexual temptation outside of the marriage. It's a bit like if you eat really well at home, it well, reduces the temptation to go and eat elsewhere. Or in the words of Proverbs 5, it's the encouragement to, to delight yourself in the provision you have. So drink water from your own system. That's a nice poetic language for have sex with your own wife. Flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It's rich language about how married couples should delight in each other. That's God's good gift and His design. Now that all sounds well and good, but as I look around, most of us aren't married. So what does that mean? Well, the Bible says it means self-control and no sex. But what about masturbation? Uh, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about it explicitly. But if uh, I can follow Paul's lead in this chapter, he seems to hold to what the Bible says clearly, and he seeks to share his wisdom. So, not seeking to lay a burden upon you, but to share God's wisdom with you. What can we say about masturbation? Now, firstly, the Bible has a lot to say about sexual sin. It records a whole lot of different instances and examples which are wrong but it never explicitly condemns masturbation. And so I think we should be cautious to write up or set rules that God hasn't set. 
But at the same time, I think the Bible does give us some clear frameworks, some clear guidelines to actually work out that masturbation is probably best avoided. Why is that? Well, as we've just seen, masturbation is not the intended goal of our sexual natures. Sex belongs within marriage, and within that context, it's about serving your, your spouse. Masturbation, particularly outside of marriage, is only about serving yourself, about meeting your own sexual desires. And that's not the way that God's designed sex. On top of this, masturbation is just generally unhelpful, I think. Uh, Self-control is the framework for how we should think about our sexual desires. Whereas masturbation seems to be, well, expressing those desires or, or giving in to those desires, uh, rather than seeking the control that God's Spirit brings in our lives. Uh, some describe masturbation as a, a helpful release uh, of our sexual desire, but it, experientially and scientifically, it seems to generally fuel and increase that desire, particularly the more you masturbate. And perhaps the greatest challenge in this space is how closely masturbation is tied to lust and pornography, especially in our over-sexualized culture where we all have more images and exposure to, to those uh, sources of lust and porn. So I think when we pull it all together, even if the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn masturbation, I think we're happiest and God is glorified in our bodies most when we seek to avoid rather than pursue masturbation. Anyway, moving on from there, you may have other questions. We can chat later. Uh, we've really touched on Paul's first exhortation to married couples. Uh, and if you're looking at the time, don't worry, we will move more quickly. And to help us get there, I'd love your help. Uh, we've got a discussion question for you guys. Not about masturbation. I thought about it, but you can thank me later that we're not. Uh, looking ahead in the chapter, verses 10 to 13, what are Paul's commands to those who are married? And as a bonus question, if that's too easy, what are the different contexts? It's week 10. It's the last Bible talk for the term. I love your answers. So get ready to dob in your friend. Enjoy the chat. All right, friends, let's come back together. I love your answers. Hopefully it wasn't too tricky. Uh, what is that question? What is Paul's command to those who are married? Who wants to yell it out for us? Stay married. Thanks, Luke. It's pretty clear. Uh, whether husband or wife, stay married. And it's the basic premise of the marriage vows. I'm not sure if you've been to a wedding recently. I was at one over the weekend. Uh, the couple's promise, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until Christ returns or we are parted by death. It's a long-term commitment. Stay married. Uh, how do you go to the second half, though? What are the different contexts that Paul's addressing? Any thoughts? Maybe your last chance to share and give feedback of the Bible talks this term. Even if your partner is non-Christian, you should stay married. Yeah, even if your partner's non-Christian. And that's quite clear from verse 12 onwards when he addresses the rest. And so I think from verses 10 and 11, he's talking about Christian couples. So I think the two different contexts, if you're Christian couples, if you're married, stay married. And even if your spouse is an unbeliever, stay married. But again, we see the clear pattern, reciprocal in its commands, but different exceptions. So in verse 11, the exception is, if the Christian wife separates, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Separation doesn't entail freedom, but there's actually ongoing obligations to that marriage, either to celibacy and singleness, or reconciliation. However, in verse 15, for the unbelieving 
spouse, if they separate, Paul says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And the logic here seems to be what we saw in chapter 5, that it's wrong to expect those who have rejected the Lordship of Jesus to follow His ways in His world. You can't expect them to uphold the marriage which they've rejected the God who created marriage. So marriage is a commitment for life. That's really clear. But let me just say briefly, if there's abuse in a, relation, in a marriage relationship, a Christian husband or wife can separate themselves for their own safety, for the safety of their children, or even for the good of the marriage. It doesn't necessarily mean divorce. Uh, and the goal, I take it, should be reconciliation. But that may not be possible, and that may take a long time. But it's right to seek safety, and it's right to actually acknowledge that there is something seriously wrong within that marriage that needs to be dealt with. And so, marriages are for life, stay together, but when things go badly wrong, it's okay to seek refuge. With this and with many of the other issues we're discussing today, some of them can be pretty emotional, lots of them are pretty complex. I can't speak into every detail of every situation. But we're going to look at some of the broad frameworks, we're going to look at some concrete expressions. But if you do have questions, if you have concerns, if things are raised, please write them on the slip, come grab me, come grab someone else who you can talk through these things together with. Uh, they are big and complex and emotional for many of us, but they are God's good word to us. So let's keep talking together. Uh, if we come back to these marriages, uh, as we helpfully saw in verse 12, some marriages between a believer and an unbeliever, I take it those situations have probably come about when one of the spouses, the husband or the wife, has been converted after marriage. Because if you look down in verse 39, Paul is really clear. He says, when you've got freedom to choose who you marry, there must be a Christian. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord, only someone who shares your faith that you can walk together with. Uh, we looked at this a few weeks ago, back in week six. And I just want to share with you a comment that one of the students who heard that talk uh, wrote on their feedback slips. Uh, she said, It's been difficult watching the self-professed Christian faith of my mum dissipate over her many years married to my non-Christian dad. There is no greater reminder of the importance of marrying someone that shares your values. It's really sad to hear. The warning is strong. Please don't think about dating or marrying someone who doesn't share your faith, who won't encourage you in your faith, who won't walk with you in following and serving the Lord Jesus. Now, that's the one requirement that verse 39 gives, someone who shares your faith. I want to say there's a few other requirements, but there's a whole lot of freedom in working out who you should marry. We've seen they need to share your faith. The Bible also is clear they should be of the opposite sex. They shouldn't be a close relative. They shouldn't be married. Otherwise, go for it. There's a whole lot of freedom. But how then do you work it out? Uh, well, perhaps I've got two bits of advice. In general, I'd say go slowly, go thoughtfully, and in relationship with others. If marriage is for life, it's a big commitment. Don't rush into it, and don't cut others out of that conversation. Uh, my second bit of advice is if you're in a relationship, if you're thinking about dating, if you think you might date in the next 10 years or whatever, uh, this is a book that I'd highly encourage you to read, grab a copy of. It's written by Paul Grimmond, who used to be uh, one of the staff here on campus. 
It's got some really helpful wisdom to try and pull together what the Bible has to say about dating and relationships. An excellent resource. Do grab it. Water for my camels. And you can work out why it's called that later on. Now, while it's never the intention as you enter into marriage, tragically, some marriages do end in divorce. Uh, the reasons are always complex and painful. And I take it some of you have experienced that firsthand in your own families. The comfort I take it of verse 17 is that even when marriages don't turn out the way that we want, such as with an unbelieving spouse departing, God is in control and He is sovereign over the situation. And I take it the encouragements that we've seen in chapters 5 and 6 is even when deep sin is involved, there is always the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. God holds our grace and forgiveness to all who turn to Him in repentance and in faith no matter what they've done. So can I encourage you, divorce is never the goal, it's not the plan, but it does happen in our world and perhaps even in our lives. And so while we do all we can to avoid it, as you experience divorce amongst those that you love, can I encourage you to be slow to judge? These things are always more complex and tricky than we can imagine or understand. And while you won't understand all the reasons, there's one thing that you can be pretty sure of, there will be deep scars. In the most intimate of relationships, which marriage is, there's the greatest opportunity and reality for pain and hurt. So can we be those who love and walk alongside those who are suffering and grieving in this way? Divorce then brings up the perhaps equally complex topic of remarriage, which has also been raised for us in verse 11. Uh, again, a hugely complex topic that we should uh, spend more time talking about in details and situations. But out of pastoral concern, a few brief con comments. When marriages do break down, I want to say that I think the Bible says remarriage is not an assumed right. We saw that in verse 11, in Christian marriage, if a wife separates, she's to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Similarly, when Jesus talks about divorce in Matthew chapter 5, He says something really interesting. He says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I take it as only adultery if there's some kind of part of the marriage that continues even after the divorce that means that that would be adulterous. The woman who is divorced is not completely free to remarry, Jesus says. But in verse 39, we see that death ends marriage in a way that divorce doesn't. And so, if your husband dies, I take it for the wife also, uh, then you are free to remarry within the Lord. So, after divorce, is remarriage ever allowed? Uh, well, in Matthew 5, Jesus seems to make an exception on the grounds of sexual immorality. And some would say that in verse 15, there's also the permission for someone who's unbelieving spouse who leaves them to remarry. They're building that in the idea that Paul says in, that, in those cases, in verse 15, you're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, there are a whole lot of much clearer ways Paul could have said it if he wanted to say that you are free to remarry. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily what he's saying. He uses different language to what he says down in verse 39. Uh, but there may be that exception. Then in a couple of those situations. At the very least, I want you to see that remarriage isn't a right or an expectation, and it's a complex thing to work through, whether that is the future. The goal, though, for this point in time, marriage is for good, 
There's a mutual commitment to serving each other sexually and that commitment is for life until death parts you or Christ returns. But what about the life of a single, which is the situation most of us are in? Uh, we're at point three in your outline, single to serve, and we'll move more quickly and get out of here on time, God willing. Now, as we'll see in the second half of the chapter, the key relationship is whether you're married or you're not. It's kind of binary. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. If you're free from a wife, do not seek a wife. And being free from a wife seems to cover being single or dating or even engaged. The key relational term that is picked up in the second half of the chapter is about being betrothed, which is probably more similar to our, our view of engagement, though it shares a bit in common with dating. So if you're not married, how do you think about singleness and relationships? Well, it's probably hard to miss as we read through the chapter. Paul wants to say singleness is really good. Verse 7 says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. Verse 8, Paul says, he makes it clear what it is to be like him. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 27 said, if you are free of a wife, do not seek a wife. Verse 38 says, he who marries his betrothed does well, but do you want to do even better? Well, don't marry your betrothed. And in verse 40, even after saying that a, a widow is free to marry whoever they like in the Lord... In Paul's judgment, they are happier if they remain as they are. So, there's a real goodness in singleness. What is that goodness? Here's one last chance for a chat. Sorry, this is your last chance. The Bible talks this term. Enjoy 30 seconds. Why is singleness so good? Enjoy. All right, friends. Sorry, we're going to come back together. There's a little bit to get through, so we're just going to keep on moving. Why is singleness so good? In our world, it's pretty common to hear that freedom is one of the real benefits of singleness. You're free to do whatever you want. No strings attached. You can live how you, how you like. You can find yourself. You can express yourself. Uh, but Paul has a slightly different line of argument. Singleness is good, he says, firstly, because it's been given to you by God. That was verse 7. The same as marriage. But that doesn't mean that that is your fixed and permanent state if God has given you at present the gift of singleness. This is the situation you find yourself in, and that is good for serving God. And it's the same with marriage. You know how I said that marriage is permanent? Well, it's mostly true. It's a commitment for your life, but it doesn't last forever. All of us are born single, about half of us end life single, and most of us spend a whole heap of time being single in the in-between times. So whether singled or married, your present situation is God's gift to you. And what do you do with it? Well, it's about serving. As serving God with all that He's provided for you. The other reason, why, well, the second reason, I think there's three, uh, of why uh, singleness is good is that marriage is part of this age and this age is passing away. So in verse 26, Paul says, I think in good of the present distress, it's good for a, remain, for a person to remain as he is. In verse 27, he says, stay single if you're single, stay married if you're married. But what's the present distress? Verse 29 says that the appointed time has grown very short. And in verse 31, that's explained as the present form of the world is passing away. You see, with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, it's like the closing credits on this age have started to roll. Those credits can still go for some time, but the end is upon us. And marriage is something that belongs to the age that is coming to an end. And so knowing that must change how we think about marriage. But not just marriage. In fact, all the things that are characterizing this life, 
And so I'm not sure if you notice in verses 29 to 31, uh, Paul says that marriage and emotions and commerce and goods, they're all going to keep being part of our lives, but they're not the focus of our lives. Verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're married, you neglect or abandon your wife. But Paul's been really clear, you're to serve them. But the challenge is that our idolatry of marriage, or career, or materialism, or even our own feelings, are not to dominate our life because they are passing away with this age. And so, in light of the times, singleness is a really good option. And thirdly, singleness is really good for your capacity to serve God. In verse 28, there's nothing wrong with getting married, but those who marry will have worldly troubles. So Paul thinks it's beneficial to avoid them. Similarly, in verse 32, Paul says his desires for the Corinthians are to be free from anxieties. And in verse 35, he's wanting to promote their good order to secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, singleness helps with this. But marriage is also about serving the Lord as you serve your spouse. In verse 32, the single man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. In verse 34, the single woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. In contrast, those who are married are anxious about worldly things in verse 33 and 34, how to please their spouse. Now, take it that is not a slight or an attack on marriage in any way. That is God's good gift in the way that you serve God in that context. By serving your spouse, you serve the Lord. That's part of your service of God. But it does just add a level of complexity to life. Now, Paul doesn't say this out of burden or anxiety for those who are dating or engaged or married or considering a relationship. All these things are good gifts from God. But in light of the time, do you see the goodness of singleness? Not freedom to serve yourself, but a freedom, a flexibility to serve the Lord. And since we all are going to spend a bunch of our our life single, we all need to consider how we use that for His glory. How are you going to use the rest of this term? It's not much of it. Your plans for the holidays? There's more of them. Your plans for next term to keep on serving and honoring the Lord with the gift of the time and the circumstances He's given you. Uh, To embrace the gift of singleness is to not lock yourself into singleness for life, but that's a commitment you could choose to make. Your situation will change whether single or married, but your attitude of devotion to God doesn't change. And so, pursue singleness, pursue marriage. There are struggles and heartache in both of them. But Paul wants you to see the real goodness of singleness, and we need to hear that. Uh, But I also wanted to flag uh, this book with you, Sam Albury's Seven Myths About Singleness, because he unpacks really helpfully some of the real benefits and the gifts of singleness. But his last chapter is also pretty real about some of the challenges of singleness. He says as he goes through debunking these myths, He says, the danger of the exercise is that we end up thinking that singleness is just a blast. But then in the last chapter, he wants people to go, there is actually a cost to the single life. Now, that's not to say that you should avoid it, but it's for us to be aware to work out how we can love one another if we're struggling with singleness, both now and in the future. It is a good way to serve, but there is also a cost that comes with it. As with marriage, 
And so can I encourage you, whether single or married, this is a great book to read, but so is uh, this book by Ed Shaw called The Plausibility Problem. Uh, these both helpfully talk about some of the joys and opportunities as well as some of the struggles of the single life. That would be well worth the read to work out how we can be a community that loves and supports each other as we seek to live this out. Singleness is good. Let us help make that a reality for those around us. And we're coming to the holidays. There's three books. Can I encourage you to grab one, grab some friends, read it over the break, and we'll find some more books for you at NYC. All right. We've got five minutes, three minutes, two minutes, one minute. Uh, time to, <laughs> the, we're at point four and thinking about, well, what does that leave us to do? Is it time to change? Uh, it may feel like a cop-out, but it's good that there's not much time. Come to NYC. Uh, we'd really love to make it possible for you to be there. It is really going to be thinking about how to make the right call. And we've kind of skipped over verses 17 to 24 about thinking about how to make these decisions and what to do as we change. We'll unpack that more at NYC. The other thing about how to change, is it time to change? Uh, remember Pirate the Dog. The most significant change that you should make and the time that you should make that is right now, is a decision to, well, let Jesus purchase your ransom, to set you free, to start living life under His Lordship. Uh, what about other decisions? If you're single, should you pursue dating? Should you consider marriage? Interestingly, Paul says one of the key reasons to consider marriage is for the sake of godliness. In verse 9, he says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In verse 36, he says, if you're behaving improperly towards your betrothed, then let it be so, let, let them marry. It may seem underwhelming, but the encouragement is that marriage is the right place for expressing your sexual desires. And so if you're finding it hard to manage those desires, then marriage is a good thing to pursue. But let me just add a couple of caveats. Getting married will not solve your struggles with a lack of self-control and with sexual sin. There's a right expression for them, but work on your godliness and your self-control now, and that will serve you now and in the future. It's also, marriage isn't just something that you can magically make happen. It requires two people to have a commitment to each other. And so for some of us, there is a grief that it is hard to find a spouse. It may take time, it may not happen. But your present situation is still a gift from God where you can faithfully serve. Don't wait to be godly in the future. God has given you all you need to serve Him in the present. Uh, the last thing to say is if you are in a relationship and you do mess up and have sex together, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should get married. That you've done the wrong thing, you need to step back. It's probably worth talking to some others about how you can get some wise counsel. But that you have had sex doesn't make a marriage. It means something needs to change in your relationship. But marriage is for life. It's a big commitment. So let us not rush into it or dive into it. And hopefully that's helped us change some of the way that we view not only God and our status as His purchased people, but the marriage which is for good and our singleness which is about serving and how we live well in this life. Let's pray that we can faithfully serve in whatever our situation. Heavenly Father, thank You for the goodness of Your Word. Uh, we acknowledge that in this chapter there have been big ideas and challenging things that we've talked about. Father, by the power of your grace and your spirit, help us to keep on mulling over these things together that we may rightly understand you and your plan for marriage, for sex, for singleness. And may we use and rejoice in whatever situation you give us as we seek to serve others and you, as we wait for your son's return. 
Father, may we glorify you in our bodies as you have purchased us to do. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.